0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Thursday, the 4th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The leader of Lebanon's powerful armed group Hezbollah has described the suspected Israeli killing of a senior Hamas official in Beirut as a major dangerous crime. In a televised speech, Hassan Nasrallah has warned that if Israel wages war on Lebanon, there'll be no ceilings and no rules to Hezbollah's fighting. Meanwhile, in Iran itself, more than 100 people have been killed in two bomb blasts. Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem. Alison, what were the key messages from the leader of this Iranian-backed group, Hezbollah?
1: Well, Kim, this speech was highly anticipated from Hassan Nasrallah. Given the killing of Hamas's deputy leader, Salah al haruri in southern Beirut yesterday, which is an area that's a Hezbollah stronghold, this is the attack that Hamas says was Uh, an assassination by an Israeli drone strike. So uh, there was a lot of people waiting to see what Nasrallah would say about whether there would be some sort of uh, Hezbollah retaliation. He has said that this was a flagrant Israeli aggression, in his words, which would not go unpunished. He says that Israel now fears for its existence and he has warned Israel not to escalate the situation further, saying that it could trigger an unrestrained and all-out confrontation from Hezbollah and, in his words, that his fighters do not fear war if Israel brings it upon Lebanon.
0: So, Alison, was there any sign from him about what the next move from Hezbollah might be?
1: Well, so far, Hezbollah's pursued a pretty narrow approach of cross-border skirmishes with Israel in solidarity with Gaza on the Israel-Lebanon border. And importantly in this speech, Nasrallah said that it hasn't really been in Lebanon's national interests at this stage to have an all-out war, given the massive economic problems that Lebanon is facing at the moment. But he didn't seem to suggest that this attack on South Beirut had, in a way, forced his hand and forced... Hezbollah's hand and that they've now made this promise to retaliate so they'll have to follow through on it. But I think it's more than that Kim. He's also warned Israel not to take this coming response as an excuse to launch a major attack on Lebanon saying that they could escalate to this to an all-out confrontation and that Hezbollah is prepared to take it all the way. I don't know how or, what, you know, what we're going to see as this retaliation from Hezbollah, but he has promised that it will happen.
0: Alison, both Hezbollah and Hamas are backed by Iran, and in Iran itself today, we've seen more than 100 people die after two blasts near a ceremony that was being held to mark the anniversary of the death of one of Iran's top military commanders. What happened?
1: Yes, yeah, so thousands of people had turned out to commemorate Qassam Soleimani. He was Iran's most powerful military commander who was killed by a US airstrike in Iraq in 2020. Iran state media is reporting that as those people were there during that commemoration... There were two explosions, suicide bombs, the Iran state media says, that killed more than 100 people and wounded scores more and the death toll is still expected to rise. Now, Iranian officials have blamed unspecified terrorists. So far, no-one has taken responsibility for this attack, although previously militant groups like Islamic State have carried out similar strikes um, and have killed people in Iran in similar ways. So although no-one has taken responsibility, there's a lot of angst and anxiety given the escalating situation we're seeing across the entirety of the Middle East right now And this is just adding to that fear of a wider regional war starting here.
0: Alison Horn: Australia has joined the United States and 10 other countries to issue a joint statement calling for an immediate end to attacks by Houthi militants in the Red Sea. It says the Iranian-backed Houthis should also release unlawfully detained vessels and crews and warns they'll bear the responsibility of the consequences should they continue to threaten lives and the global economy. Reporter Nell Whitehead
2: takes a look at the tensions in the Red Sea. When Yemen's Houthi rebels seized a cargo ship in the Red Sea in November, they thrust the vital trade route into the centre of the conflict in the Middle East. The militants have since launched a string of attacks on ships passing through the Red Sea. The Houthi rebels are backed by Iran as part of its so-called axis of resistance against Israel and the US, and they claim they're targeting ships linked to Israel to show support for Hamas. Malcolm Davis, a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, says they have other aims.
3: The Red Sea is a critical maritime region. The shipping lanes that go through there, I think, account for about 12% of global maritime shipping. So what we're seeing is... Iran via the Houthis' attempt to close off that shipping
2: lane. The US responded by launching an international naval coalition, Operation Prosperity Guardian, to safeguard cargo passing through the Red Sea. It's one of the world's busiest shipping lanes, linking the Mediterranean and Suez Canal to the Indian Ocean. But several shipping companies have stopped using the route, now travelling the much longer way around South Africa instead. Dr Shaheen Berenji is an assistant professor at the US Naval War College.
4: This will threaten and this will disrupt global trade. So the United States, we have adopted a defensive posture where the Houthis have attempted to fire missiles, drones, or they have attempted to board cargo ships. The United States and other members of the coalition have attempted to repel those attacks.
2: The two sides were drawn into direct confrontation on January the 1st when US helicopters repelled the attempted seizure of a Maersk ship, sinking three Houthi boats and killing 10 militants. Iran has since dispatched a naval destroyer to the Red Sea. Dr Berenji says the risks of escalation are rising.
4: This is bringing the United States into not just direct confrontation with Iranian proxies, which is something we've already been doing, but it's bringing the United States into a potential conflict with Iran.
2: White House national security spokesperson John Kirby has declined to say if Washington would consider a preemptive strike on the Houthis, though Britain's Defence Secretary Grant Shapps wrote in its Daily Telegraph that we are willing to take direct action against the rebels. Australia's federal government declined in December to send a warship to the Red Sea, saying it's focused on the immediate region of the Indo-Pacific, but it has deployed six more defence personnel to the combined maritime forces in Bahrain. Nell Whitehead reporting. Ten days after the Christmas night tornado swept through parts of
0: southeast Queensland, some residents still don't have power. 50 Defence Force personnel joined the mammoth recovery effort today, using high-clearance vehicles to help with the clean-up in the Scenic Rim, Logan and the Gold Coast. And as Stephanie Smale reports, exhausted locals say it's all taking a toll.
5: As the slow recovery continues, locals at Jimboomba, south of Brisbane, are getting help where they can. I'm doing four or 500 meals a day out of here at the moment. Sarah Weir has been running a drop-in centre at the Jimboomba Community Hall since last Wednesday. It's open 12 hours a day, offering meals, showers and internet access. People are really starting, like, there's desperation kicking in. People are getting really frustrated. And you know, not frustrated at anybody in particular or throwing blame at anybody. It's just a frustrating situation. It's one of the regions the tornado tore through on Christmas night and thousands in its destructive path still don't have power. A lot of people are having a lot of luck with insurance. The common theme is, though, that... The insurance companies are saying, well, yes, if you need to go and buy a generator and, you know, go and buy the fuel for your generator and all that kind of stuff, we'll cover it. But you've got to go and buy it first and then send us the receipts and we'll reimburse you. And do people um, have money for that? No, they don't. They don't. Fellow local Thorin Ledger says many people are exhausted.
1: You know, I've, I've shared it to you and I've certainly shed tears with with some of my friends and yeah there's there's definitely trauma out there in our community. You know it's just so much to contend with.
5: She says the tornado's force and the torrential rain that followed has meant some people still can't get in and out of their properties without a struggle. That's an issue in emergencies like when her friend's son was injured.
1: He spilled some boiling water on him when they were making noodles on on the camp stove and um, burnt himself quite badly and, and they couldn't get out. And the ambulance had to come to them and sort of climb over fences through the neighbours to to get this young boy out.
5: Thorin Ledger's tree-lopping business is in high demand, but the weather and the damage to the power grid have meant progress is slow.
1: It just wasn't safe, you know. we We had so much rain, so that put everybody a day behind. We're sort of waiting to clear trees because of the electricity situation as well. You know, there's a lot of power lines caught up in some of those trees and debris that are blocking driveways.
5: It's usually a busy time for tourism in the region, but with no power, visitors have been turned away. Authorities say they're not expecting the region's tourism industry to be back on its feet for another couple of weeks.
0: Stephanie Smale reporting. Parts of every state in the northern territory are experiencing a heatwave this week. In the town of Marble Bar in the northwest of Western Australia, it reached almost 50 degrees on the weekend. However, that's not a new experience for the so-called hottest town in Australia, so our reporter Isabel Masali has been asking locals what they do to keep
6: cool. Driving into Marble Bar, a sun-shaped sign proudly states warmest welcome from Australia's hottest town. This summer marks 100 years since the town of about 150 people in WA's northwest earned that title and it's one Wendy McWhirter-Brooks is still pretty proud of. She's on the local shire and the town's tourist association. Marble Bar had 160 days over
5: 100 degrees Fahrenheit. At that time, that set a record for the longest continuous number of days over 100 degrees
6: Fahrenheit. That record hasn't been beaten. That's nearly 38 degrees Celsius, and summer temperatures above 40 is part of the life here.
5: Early morning from daylight, say till about nine o'clock on a very hot day,
6: it'll be okay to be outside doing things, but stay inside during the hottest part of the day. It's something Pam Townsend has had to adapt to.
5: I like to go out bush sometimes to take photos. I have a wet face washer and a plastic bag which I wipe myself down with and just keep the fluids up.
6: She explains the heat is a tourist attraction of sorts. As for living here... I love it. I've been here 17 months now and it's just fabulous
0: and, yes, it gets damn hot in summer.
6: For the next week, temperatures are forecast to hit the mid-40s every day... And on the weekend, the Bureau of Meteorology recorded 49.3 degrees, matching its record from 2018. Local nurse Brian Higgins says most people know how to cope, and he's actually more busy in winter when tourists arrive.
5: I used to say 40 was hot, but the second summer, it had to be 45 before I was saying it was hot, because you do acclimatise.
6: The Bureau of Meteorology's Jessica Lingard says 50.7 degrees is the record for the hottest temperature in Australia and it belongs to Unadatta in outback South Australia and Onslow in WA's Pilbara. Right now, conditions are easing for that region, including Marble Bar. But that's not the case for other parts of the country.
5: There is a bit of an easing trend in the heat waves, especially for the western parts of the country. But we do see continued heat waves for northern Queensland. And as we move towards the end of the week um, and across the weekend, it does look like we do see a bit of a return of those heat wave conditions for the western parts.
0: Meteorologist Jessica Lingard, ending that report by Isabel Masali. A growing number of Australians are turning to medicinal cannabis for help managing a range of medical conditions, including epilepsy and chronic pain. And although it's legal, many workplaces still don't accept it, making it a tricky issue for businesses and employees to navigate. Alexandra Humphreys reports.
7: When Rob Murray turned up for work at a Queensland mine feeling rested after a good night's sleep, he was red flagged at the gate.
5: Then they tested me on site and they came up positive, so then they stood me down, subject to investigation.
7: He'd taken medicinal cannabis the night before for his arthritis, prescribed by a doctor to ease neck pain.
5: It's the only product really that I've found that it gives me the best sleep. I can sleep right through to my alarm every night with it. Not a problem. Prior to that, the arthritis. Sometimes I'd wake me during the night and I'd broken sleeps.
7: Rob lost his contract with the mine. He hasn't worked since.
5: And uh, it's cost me nearly thousand dollars and made me unemployed.
7: Some medicinal cannabis contains the impairing ingredient THC, but it's not in everything, and some medicines contain only small amounts. THC can show up in tests long after the effects of the medicine have passed. Liam O'Brien is an assistant secretary at the Australian Council of Trade Unions.
2: We have testing regimes across the country that are now starting to pick up workers who have been prescribed medicinal cannabis and who are using it often in place of medications that are significantly more likely to impair them.
7: Dr Lee Thompson is a senior research fellow at the National Centre for Education and Training on Addiction with Flinders University. The
1: kind of common health conditions that people might be taking medicinal cannabis for are things like chronic pain, sleep problems, mental illnesses,
5: PTSD. So In the past, people would have been taking
7: other kinds of really strong medication to deal with these conditions. David Halpern is the Dean of Law at Southern Cross University and a former New South Wales Magistrate. He's also the campaign lead of Drive Change, an organisation pushing for cannabis law reform.
0: If you have to drive for work and you are on a prescription, then unless you're in the state of Tasmania, you are illegally driving and are subject to losing your licence and being criminalised. Also, uh, you'll be breaching the terms and conditions of your
7: job. So you're also likely to lose your job. In Tasmania it's illegal to drive with THC in your system but there is a defence if a driver can show they have a prescription and aren't adversely affected. David Hulpern says that approach is also used in other countries and should be expanded across Australia. Government guidelines say there is a risk of impairment for up to eight hours after taking oral products containing THC. There's no evidence the other active ingredient in medicinal cannabis, CBD, affects driving.
0: Alexandra humphrey's reporting. Over seven million tonnes of food gets wasted every year, much of it before it even leaves the farm. But there's a growing movement trying to fight food waste by changing our idea of what fresh produce should look like. Flint Duxfield prepared this report.
3: These are oranges, so we've got a bin here. It's probably got the best part of a tonne kicking around the fridge, ready to go out.
4: At a warehouse in Melbourne's north, Josh Ball walks me through giant cool rooms filled with crates of freshly delivered fruit and veg. Today, he's had about 20 tonnes of food delivered, all of which is perfectly edible but wouldn't make the grade in a regular supermarket.
3: There's a bit of discoloration, a little bit wonky, all that kind of stuff. Uh, capsicums, good example, these are multicoloured. They're not red or green, so they're mixed colour and they're not, they're not up to spec.
4: Which is where the Farmer's Pick model comes in. It takes food that would have otherwise been discarded because it doesn't quite look right and delivers it direct to consumers. For them, it's all about cutting emissions. Around 10% of global emissions come from food waste.
3: So about 50% of oranges, or, or citrus more generally, will get graded out through... Through the process um, and they will literally dump it out in the middle of a paddock and then just yeah leave it out there to rot. If the food breaks down anaerobically, um produces methane then that's 28 times more potent compared to carbon dioxide.
4: Food wastage also has significant economic impacts. Francesca Goodman-Smith is a program leader at Advocacy and Research Group in Food Waste Australia.
5: We waste enough food in Australia to fill the Melbourne Cricket Ground to the brim almost 10 times every year. And this costs the Australian economy around $36.6 billion a year as well.
4: Both the major food retailers, Coles and Woolworths, as well as smaller chains like Harris Farm, do sell imperfect produce. But there's still millions of tonnes of food that gets wasted every year because of the way it looks. Catherine Valicia is a farmer on the outskirts of Melbourne and one of Farmer's Pick suppliers.
7: It really
5: is fantastic because you're exposing um, the public to the realities of fruit and vegetable growing and that all food doesn't look perfect, but that doesn't mean it isn't perfect, both taste-wise and nutrition.
4: Farmers' pick redistributes around 45 tonnes of produce each week, and Josh Ball is optimistic that as people start to appreciate imperfect produce, the amount of food that can be saved from wastage will only continue to grow.
3: You go out on the farm and you see the scale that some of these, some of these farmers are operating at, and maybe we're taking five tonne a week of potatoes and they're, they're wasting you know 100 tonne a week.
4: <laughs> Could you deal with more if you just had enough people interested in buying it? What's the, the stumbling block there?
3: Yeah absolutely I mean we're ready to sort of scale up and, and make that demand and, and get more produce in from, on, from the farm and that's definitely the aim.
0: Founder of Farmer's Peak, Josh Ball ending that report from Flint Duxfield. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.